The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. For the first time in four years, the Warbirds Over Wanaka International Air Show returns Easter 2022, featuring aircraft from the past and present as part of the RNZ AF's 85th anniversary celebrations. From the iconic Spitfire to the RAAF's F-35 fighter jets in New Zealand for the first time ever. Witness breathtaking aerobatic and pyrotechnic displays. The spectacle will be sky high. The Warbirds Over Wanaka International Air Show. Tickets on sale now at Ticketek. The new series on Aviation Extended, produced in collaboration with the Wings Over New Zealand podcast, is all about RAF Coastal Command in World War II. He said, look, just give me 40. 40 is what I need, which is a tiny amount, really. To give you a perspective of just um, how many, in relative terms, how few 40 is, we, the Americans, lose uh, 53 liberators. So just on one raid, we're losing more than actually Jubilee saying, listen, give me these and I can win the Battle of the Atlantic. They really were, I think, the most vital uh, long-range aircraft that Coast Command employed in the Second World War. I've read in post-war accounts of the incident it was hopelessly undergun. And it kind of annoys me because when it entered service, and OK, they'd only had two, three or three machine guns, but so did the frontline fighters of the RAF at that time. For the Battle of the Atlantic, I didn't think there could be any equivocation about the, the importance of Coastal Command's role. Dial into the series on Aviation Extended. That's aviation-extended.co.uk or go to your podcast player and look us up. Hi everybody, Andrew Gormley, CEO of Classic Flyers here. If you're interested in classic aviation and you want to get up close and personal to old aircraft and see some of New Zealand's aviation history, come across the Classic Flyers, Jean Batten Drive, Mount Monganui, right on the edge of the airport. You can go for flights in old aeroplanes like Boeing Stearmans and Harvards. There's lots to see. Kids' parties happening here all the time. We have functions and function rooms, business meetings, and a great cafe with excellent coffee. If you'd like to be involved with Classic Flyers, we also have the volunteer groups who do all things from helping out with function work or just on the main hangar floor with visitors and guests or birthday parties, right through to engineers who get involved in restoring some of our wonderful old aircraft assets. These things are all part of New Zealand's aviation history. It's a great place and it's in a good location come and have a visit. Check out the website on www.classicflyersnz.com Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood, and I'd like to welcome Max Speedy back to the show. Hi, Max. 
And good morning, Dave. How are you? Great. I'm really good. Now, um, we covered in the last interview we did your Vietnam War experiences, but we didn't cover it all. And today, I'd like to take you back to the beginning of when you first joined the Navy, and we'll take you through your Navy career, and we'll touch on some more of the Vietnam experiences as well as we go. Uh, so can you tell us, please, what made you want to join the Navy in the first place, the Royal Australian Navy? I wasn't expecting that. Um, <laughs> why did I want to join? I needed a job, mate. I needed a job. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, I'd, I'd done the schooling. Uh, I had great expectations, but uh, they weren't met by my uh, scholastic results. Yeah. And I uh, got to the end of high school up in uh, Queensland uh, 19, end of 1961, and no one had offered me uh, a Rhodes scholarship or uh, wanted me to go to uh, Cambridge or anything silly like that. Yeah. Um, so I, with half a dozen mates, I went off picking potatoes, okay. uh, <laughs> as you do when you need a bit of pocket money. Yeah. Um, but I, I knew I wasn't in for labouring. I didn't like that stuff much. And um, fortunately found an advertisement in, a, in the Queensland main newspaper that, that said uh, the Navy wanted observers. Now, I didn't have a clue what an observer was, but it looked as though it was interesting and uh, and applied uh, and was one of two in Queensland and one of seven in Australia who were picked okay. to become the first uh, observers or navigators, if uh, people don't know what that is, um, in the back of the Navy's brand new anti-submarine helicopters. Uh, yeah, they, the fleet air arm had just about been uh, scrapped in 1959, but then the government had second thoughts and decided to keep it. Um, and the, with the anti so well, with the Russian submarine threat really a big thing, very serious issue for us in Australia, uh, with client states of the uh, Russians, like uh, the Indonesians for us. Yeah. Um, were creating specific problems in the submarine world. So this was the answer to it. And so I joined, um, first of all, down at Cerberus, our major Navy base for all basic training in uh, the beginning of 62 with those seven other, or six other guys, me and, one, me and six others, uh, in beginning of 1962, doing as every recruit does, run, jump, swim, get up early, get wet, swimming and all that sort of caper but as a midshipman living an absolutely gloriously um, wonderful life uh, as a young officer in the navy's finest wardroom silver service for every meal breakfast yeah. lunch and dinner white napkins the whole bit yeah um, it was glorious i'd have to tell you and so we did that for nine months or so nothing to do with flying absolutely nothing to do with flying but uh, in uh, August, uh, we were all sent to Malta, where the Royal Navy had its observer training school in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And it couldn't have been even, it was hard to believe that it could have been so glorious, but it was. It was an amazing place to be, right. fabulous uh, place to be. And we jumped into aeroplanes for the first time there, learning to navigate and 
um, find our way around the Mediterranean doing all sorts of crazy stuff, um, square searches and uh, times to intercept and all those fancy things that navigators did with uh, paper and uh, pencils and dividers. So no who's, who, who's, yep. uh, whose aircraft were those? Was, this, was that Royal Navy or...? Oh, yes, Royal Navy stuff. Yes, yep. Royal Navy's aircraft, Sea Princes they were. Uh, Percival Sea Prince, if you can imagine a very, very small Fokker friendship. High wing, <laughs> right. two engines. Yep, yep, yep. Gotcha. Uh, yep. Yep, a couple of pilots up front. Well, they were only ever flew with one up front and, uh, and one of us trainees in the back trying to get ourselves lost out over the Mediterranean. Right. But this was the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and right. the Mediterranean was absolutely chock-a-block with uh, all sorts of uh, warships of the Brits and the Americans. The American Seventh Fleet was there, and the Russians didn't have much of a, a military warship presence, but they had hundreds of fishing boats uh, loaded with uh, all the aerials you could imagine trying to gather intelligence on the fleet. Uh, that we would have to uh, maintain, I suppose, uh, to maintain the peace. So that was Malta. Right. Uh, we passed out of there gloriously uh, confident in our inabilities, <laughs> but we passed yeah. uh, back to Australia in uh, 63 now for our operational flying in the back of the Wessex helicopter, which was all anti-submarine work, learning how to work the uh, the sonar uh, arrangements, pinging against submarines from a helicopter. First, I think they were the first helicopters that ever did it. Oh, the Americans would have had a couple themselves. But the Wessex, Westland Wessex, a British aircraft, and the, the sonar ball that it had dropped, you put it about 30 feet into the water, 50 feet into the water, on a long cable and uh, and listen for submarines. Okay. It's pretty pretty cutting edge technology, and it, that sort of stuff is the only way to go chasing submarines these days from helicopters. Anyway, that was sixty three. Uh, the end of middle of sixty three, we were sufficiently well qualified to uh, embark on eight one seven squadron, uh, the frontline Wessex squadron, and we our first cruise up to uh, Singapore and uh, took part in the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization uh, group of countries uh, working our way around those places, doing various exercises and showing everybody how, how strong that, that part of the world was in basically British and British hands. Okay. That was 63, back home in 60 or the end of 63, we come now to uh, 1964. Same thing was about to happen all over again with 817 Squadron going to sea or embarking on the aircraft carrier in, on the 11th of February 1964. And on that, the night before that, the 10th of February, um, all the uh, helicopter squadron people were having a mighty barbecue at one of the homes of one of the, uh, the people there. At around about nine o'clock, there was a frantic call from the hostess of the place saying, get back to the base, there's been an accident, and no one believed it, but eventually she, she made us all go, and we did. And we got back to the base to find all the lights on, the hangers are open, the runway lights were on, and 
and that was the night of the uh, Voyager Melbourne disaster. And what, what was that? I'm not. I'm not aware of what that was. Oh, okay. HMAS Voyager was uh, got in the way of HMAS Melbourne. Oh. Uh, Voyager was sliced in two, and and sank, killing uh, eighty two people. Oh hell! That was uh, the that was the tenth of February, nineteen sixty four, and and because we had the helicopters, we went out there that night, looking for survivors. That right. was why we were sent from the barbie, the barbecue, yeah. unbelieving yeah. until we. We got to uh, within about half a mile of the airfield where we could see all the lights on, and then we knew there was a problem. Yeah. Uh, and so from then on through the next two full days and nights, uh, the squadron flew continuously, and me, me with them, obviously, and everybody else looking for looking for anything and anything. Okay. Um, I was I was probably out in the second group of helicopters to go that night. Uh, I don't think I saw the back half of Voyager still afloat. Um, I just don't have that recollection, but uh, we were all there, that's for sure. Yeah. And uh, the recriminations went on for years. It was a savage uh, business where the politicians got, well, they got into everybody. Uh, yeah. It started, sadly, because Navy decided that they would deal with the emergency, which was fine. It happened at night, but the Prime Minister, Menzies, didn't hear about anything from anybody until he heard the news the next morning that there'd been one of his ships had been sunk. And at that point, uh, political and military relations were very, very severe strain. I mean, the Navy had traditionally looked after its own business, had been above politics and had had really told the government of the day whatever it thought the government of the day should be told. Right. From that day onwards, uh, the game changed. Oh, okay. All right, and you have this current situation where the politicians run the show, uh, which is not particularly good and there's somewhere in between those two extremes where it uh, probably works best but uh, for the Australian Navy that's how that happened to us politically. Um, I mean my personal recollections of that night are that you know crikey if this happens in peacetime what's war going to be like? Yeah. And uh, there was a sobering thought I think for everybody if 80 odd people could get killed you know, in a simple accident like that, um, it's going to be a hell of a lot worse later on. Yeah, anyway, absolutely. we did eventually, uh, Melbourne was repaired uh, that year and we went back up north to the uh, Southeast Asian area at the end of the year. That, that sorted out 1964. Um, 1965, I was uh, sent for sea venom or all-weather night fighter. Do you know what a sea venom looks like? Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's like the, the two-seat vampire sort of thing. but exactly. uh, yeah, a yeah, bigger vampire. Yeah, tip tanks yeah. and stuff. Yeah, it had a, uh, an air intercept radar in it, which was uh, my piece of kit to look after. And the name of the game was to uh, lock on to the incoming bombers um, Russian bears, 
and that sort of stuff and then guide my pilot in astern so he could fire uh, fire at it. I'm glad that never had to happen. <laughs> it, was yeah. a, it was dodgy work, I'd have to tell you, yeah. and difficult, terribly difficult work. Um, but, yeah, it was interesting. And so from that was 65. In 1966, I was, I was qualified enough to go to sea in sea venoms. And for my trouble, I probably had a couple of hundred uh, death-defying attempts at being killed uh, by my pilot landing on and taking off Melbourne. Um, right. arrested landings and catapult launches and all that stuff. Okay. But about a year, about that time, all of us on that initial observer course, the first seven of us, uh, had <clears throat> had our hands up for uh, pilot training. And pretty well all of us were accepted. Uh, not all of us went off to flying training together. Some went uh, earlier than me, but I got my chance to go to uh, number 63 pilots course at Point Cook here in Victoria in 1967. And with uh, one of my mates on that first course, we worked our way through the pilot training. I was, I was ducks and uh, best academe at Point Cook and my friend David reversed the tables on me at Pierce uh, with him becoming the ducks and me the best pilot, but it didn't seem it didn't bother us. We're still good mates. Yeah. Um, the idea being that both of us, our ideas being that both of us would go to the new A4 Skyhawk that the Navy was getting at that time. But unbeknownst to me, but apparently uh, uh, the Navy, well, the Navy did have different ideas. David went to Skyhawks and I went to helicopters. Right. And. I tell you, I was not impressed <laughs> and, told, and told everybody so, I might add. Um, I mean, he and, he and I were the two best pilots, I think, that anyone had seen at Point Cook in a long time. Uh, but anyway, be that as it may, I went to helicopters. I'm totally ignorant of anything that was happening in Vietnam. Had did my helicopter conversion course in an Iroquois uh, B model at uh, 723 Squadron. Uh, passed that and was happily ensconced in the Wessex uh, at 725 Squadron, doing my operational try flying in the front seat this time yeah. of that aircraft that I'd started off as a navigator in the back seat a few years earlier. Um, one of our pilots back at 723 Squadron, who was going to Vietnam, had a terrible accident, killed himself and a couple of other people out at one of our rifle ranges nearby in, a, uh, in an accident, which uh, uh, killing him then placed me in his position as the 2IC of the second group of people to go to Vietnam in the helicopter flight. Right. The first group went in, uh, sorry, middle of 1967, and my turn came in September 68 to go to Vietnam as a 2IC of the second group. Okay. And then uh, I guess you can, uh, I won't go through the whole of the Vietnam thing as we've done an interview on that, but uh, it was certainly interesting flying. We, all of us, everybody who flew 
helicopters in Vietnam came from an environment of absolutely no idea of what combat flying was like. So everybody, Americans and ourselves, did the couple of hundred hours co-pilot time with an experienced pilot. And 200 hours in that environment only took two months to get or even less. We were flying at around about 120 to 140 hours per person per month. So you got your you got your co-pilot time sorted out very quickly, and and I became an aircraft captain uh, within two months easily, and became the first platoon leader of the uh, helicopter lift aircraft in the 135th Assault Helicopter Company. Right, right. And that was it. That was basically. Um, it was almost that simple. Every day, well, not every day, I didn't fly every day, but we were flying supposedly in a one, on a one in three arrangement. There were enough air crew and enough aircraft to, to warrant uh, you're flying one in three. I probably flew about one day, one in two. I'd probably fly two days and have a break uh, off, basically because I was the platoon commander uh, basically because I was also an air mission commander and there were only three people who flew the air mission aircraft, the air, the air mission commander's aircraft, uh, the CO, the XO and uh, the operations officer. And I was the ops officer by this stage. So I was doing quite a lot of flying. Right, of course. Our company would fly, was supposed to fly about 1,500 hours per month. That was the, the rate at which uh, stores and maintenance effort was predicated on from America, all American aircraft, in case I haven't made that point. And 1,500 hours per month, and we'd have our stores provided for, you know, new engines and all that stuff to support us on that basis. But the fact of the matter was it, we were flying at such a rate um, 3,400 to it was the least number of hours we ever flew in a month. Wow. About 4,200 and something hours. Is, it was one of our busiest months. Now, that's way over the 1,500 hours per month that we're being resupplied for stores. And so you can imagine that after a while, this builds up to some serious problems. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. All, sorts of, yeah, all sorts of unserviceabilities just being a standard deal. Uh, if you could get the aeroplane to start in the morning, then you flew it. It was practically that simple. Okay. And one of our aircraft in the in the company was at the hands of the maintenance people, and they would go around the country scrounging bits and pieces for whatever was required. You know, I'll swap you an engine for, you know, a set of rotor blades or that sort of caper, and it was happening all the time. It was supposedly right. banned. Um, but it kept us airborne, and so that's how we did it. Yeah. Mm, you were very careful with your pre-flight inspections every morning, I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> with, the, with the aircraft uh, in this unit, were you using the same aircraft that the Americans in the unit were using, like swapping around, or did you have your own specific ones for the Royal Australian Navy guys? Uh, we didn't have um, a specific aircraft. We went there 
as a group of uh, people and the army provide the US army provided everything else aircraft um, the maintenance we, the, our navy just provided the bodies right right bodies uniforms and pay there you go so the Americans provided the rest yeah but there were other American air crews on that same unit that you were in weren't there oh yes we were uh, just talking about the air crew for a moment in each of the contingents there were only eight Navy. Yeah. There were only eight Navy pilots, right? And right. four and four air crewmen who were doing the flying. And over the four years that were there, four groups, there were therefore about fifty uh, aviators. Right. Now there were also observers in the group. Another four observers in each of the contingents, but they. Basically, well, they, they did fly occasionally. Everybody did a bit of flying. Our bosses made sure that everybody, aviator or not, uh, flew just to see what was going on. Yeah. The observers, though, uh, because of their um, organisational roles, went into the company, battalion and group operations areas. And all of them, uh, over the four years, did some amazing stuff at battalion and group level where they really exceeded everybody's amazing expectations or lack of expectations that the Aussies did remarkably well in that area and, and came away with uh, praise for all sorts of in, incredible organisational skills. Right. So that was the observers, but um, the, the aviators, uh, we flew American aircraft, American everything. And did you have any, um, like, on the on the aircraft, on the squadron, did you ever put any Australian markings on them along with the American markings, or did they look like just like standard American helicopters? They were standard American helicopters. No, there was never any uh, Aussie recognition, that, except on our helmets, perhaps. Okay, yep, yep. Yep, that would be about it. Well, you'd have your name. That was it. Yeah. And as I had a huge bushy, oh God, I looked awful. <laughs> it was a, it was a disgusting beard. It was more like a, a Latter Day Saint or something. <laughs> um, so I was obviously instantly recognisable as not American because they weren't allowed to have beards. They could have oh, moustaches. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the Vietnamese, especially the kids, just loved pulling your beard to make sure it was real. <laughs> well, you see, uh, the Vietnamese aren't known for their tonsurial uh, skills. Right. And, and so a, a, a beard for a Vietnamese or an East Asian person is a sign of great age. Okay. Oh, wow. and, and with it goes uh, seniority in all sorts of, of forms. And so the kids were always just checking me up. Checking me out. Yeah, he looks as, he looks young, but he doesn't look old enough to to be that smart. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, did did your navy guys carry on any other naval traditions at all? I mean, did you have your tot of rum or anything else that came from the navy whilst you're in Vietnam, or did you have to completely act like you were Americans in the American unit? <clears throat> um, our beards were the thing. The uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the squadron CO 
uh, the, sorry, the company CEO was an army assault helicopter company, a major. He, he loved our beards. He thought it was the greatest thing since sliced bread. My <laughs> boss um, was very definitely in favour of it. it. It made us stand out. There's no question about that. Yeah. The battalion commander, the 222nd Combat Aviation Battalion Commander, thought it was disgusting. Really? Absolutely disgusting. He just hated it. It was not, it did not look good. His bloody men, didn't matter who they were, had to look smart and tidy and all the rest of it. Well, we didn't. <laughs> There's no question <laughs> of that. Um, he tried on a number of occasions to get us to shave our beards off and enlisted the aid of the Australian Army General in Saigon. And he came down once lined us all up and said, get the beards off. And my boss, bless him, told him to get stuffed. <laughs> it went all the way up to Canberra. It went all the way to Canberra. And uh, eventually, fortunately, our Navy chief said, sorry, <clears throat> it's a tradition. They can keep their beards. Wow. Okay. So that was how we were identified. Um we had one incident where I was leading the flight of 10. I had a brand new American with me, a first lieutenant, straight, almost straight out of uh, Fort Rucker in America. And we landed at Long Bin, which was where General Abrams, but this time, I think, Westmoreland had gone. Abrams was there. Yeah. Where uh, Abrams was in command of the place. But it was a fuel stop and we needed fuel, so we stopped there. That's fine. Everybody's refueling their aircraft and up comes this beautifully dressed colonel, creases the sharpest blimmin' knives in his trousers and shirt and just look beautiful. Where's the person in charge of this flight? I said, I am. No, no, he said, you can't be. I said, well, I am. What's your problem? He says those aeroplanes aren't straight in a line. <laughs> and <laughs> your pilots are scruffy. <laughs> I said, well, look, it's the way it is, and we've been working. Get over it, or words to that effect. Yeah. And then he, yeah. got, he, he knew, I don't know whether he really knew that I was an Australian or he, or he realised that I wasn't, he must have realised I wasn't Australian and, so, and then wanted to home in on the, the senior American. Where's the senior American? And he was standing right beside me. And I said, he's here, but he's going to be no use to you. Anyway, we had a mighty bloody fight. Uh, and the long and the short of it was we refueled and we just jumped into our airplanes and left with him sort of fuming on the, on the tarmac watching us go. So there were some subtle differences in how we played the game. Yeah. When you were doing refueling, uh, I know in the last interview you also mentioned hot refueling. Yep. Did you did you guys as the crew do that yourselves, or would there be people there to do the fueling, like you know ground staff uh, no at all the refueling way. points? No way. No, no, no. We refueled ourselves. Okay. Yep. Your rotors would you'd, you'd roll the throttle back to flight idle or ground idle. Um, one of the one of the other I can't remember now. I haven't flown these things for a while. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, go back to flight. Go back to idle of some description, and the the gunner and the crew chief would 
jump out and do the actual refueling. Um, these places were generally 15 little squares of steel plating on the ground of enough space for uh, a helicopter to, or a line of 15 helicopters to land on them. Yep. And five or 10 yards away uh, would be a hose stuck into a, um, a piece of pipe in the ground attached to a, a fuel line. Okay. And the, the gunner and crew chief would um, grab that, open the, uh, the fuel tank up and uh, pump the fuel in. The pilot, the one pilot obviously stayed in the aeroplane and the other pilot would get out and stretch a leg and if you had time, uh, he'd swap, you know, you'd swap places so that the, the, the other, the each pilot could have a bit of a stretch of their legs and yep. that was that. Um, and we did that one of my longest, one of our longest days uh, was nearly 14 hours and we didn't shut down for the first seven and a half. Wow. So hot refueling every uh, couple of hours in that period. We also rearmed our own aircraft as well. Okay. Every fuel stop had somewhere around um, boxes and boxes and boxes of 7.62 ammo in oh great big boxes, huge little box, but probably about a I think about a thousand rounds per box. Can't remember okay. exactly. Yeah. Um, we we'd load up the guns with 7.62, and the gunships would do the same with their stuff. They they took a little bit longer to uh, to link up. Um, 6,000 rounds, which they were able to carry in the for the miniguns, yeah. and yeah. the same deal would happen. They would rearm their own rockets as well. Rockets okay. were okay. in their hundreds in little uh, covered lean-tos, basically next to uh, or near the refueling points, and so people would be, you know, carrying two or th two rockets per uh, person, so eight people, sorry, four people, eight rockets, um, three or four trips, and you've loaded up your 38 rockets. Okay. It was all, no one ever signed a piece of paper for anything like that. You oh, just okay. went wherever you wanted your, your fuel, you rearmed. Uh, I mean, we were firing this stuff off at such a phenomenal rate. Uh, they had to keep it up to us, and so it was, it would have been crazy to have tried and made you sign a chip <laughs> to say, I have yeah. just taken possession of. Um, there was no point in that. Yeah. Did you ever get to uh, one of the refueling points and find that um, it had been taken over by the enemy or anything like that? Or, or were they fairly safe places? Uh, they were never safe. They were never 100% safe. Uh, one of my earliest adventures was to land at a place near Ben Trey. Now, Ben Trey was one of the more ugly uh, places that we had to work around. And there was an F, there was a, a refueling spot there. Uh, we were so low on fuel, we had to get fuel there that we couldn't have gone anywhere else. Yeah. And we, um, we had to fend off an attack whilst we were getting our fuel. Okay. Wow. Um, and that wasn't uncommon. I've been mortared in a few places getting fuel. Uh, in bigger places, there are a couple of bases down uh, further 
along the Mekong River that uh, got regularly mortared almost on a daily basis. And when a flight of helicopters came in, you could almost guarantee to get mortared. Right, right. Okay. Can you tell me about navigating? Uh, obviously, in the crew, there, there's the two pilots, the gunner and the crew chief. Um, so I take it that the pilots are doing the navigation as well. Um, trying to find a spot in the jungle that you are meant to land and drop off, drop off troops. How, how easy was that or how hard was that? Uh, very difficult, I guess. The, the places we went were... Uh, navigation wasn't so difficult. The maps weren't easy to... Uh, we had nothing that would take us there. I mean, you didn't push buttons and the aeroplane would fly mm. to a spot and, oh, there we are. But generally speaking, you could you could head out in a direction for five or 10 or 20 minutes and you knew you'd be close to where you had to go to. Yep. And it was the battalion commander in the back for the most part. I mean, he was he was reasonably able to... Uh, navigate as well. He had to know where he wanted his troops to be put. And in the command and control aircraft up 1,500 feet or so, you had a fair, a fair view of the surrounding countryside. So you could, you could get to find where the landing zone was. Yeah. If it was in the jungle, well, uh, we, we never landed troops off uh, wires hanging out of the aeroplane and dropping them into the ground. We always landed the aircraft on the ground. Yep. We needed enough space for the 10 aircraft or maybe five time if it was really tight to land to get the troops out. So there's a hole in the jungle somewhere where uh, the troops are going and holes in jungles are easy enough to find. Okay. In the flat of the delta, it's... It's jungle, it's rice paddy, it's relatively open, innumerable canals, uh, tiny little tracks. Uh, we would land in these places to drop the troops off. It wasn't too hard to get around. It was dodgy at times. Uh, when it was raining, it was awful, of course. It took a bit longer, but uh, it wasn't so hard. But yes, with the pilots up the front were doing the navigation. We had yeah. maps. Yeah, most of the time, uh, the command and control aircraft would find where you had to go, drop a smoke marker, and uh, you would land to the smoke. Okay, right. Now, in the in the last interview, you talked about uh, other aircraft crashing and you having to pick up, um, you know, down crews and things like that. Did you yourself ever have any crashes uh, in Vietnam? Didn't ever crash. I got shot down twice. Right. Uh, first time I took eight bullet holes up and around the engine and lost oil and uh, a fuel line. And it all went a bit quiet, but it wasn't too dreadful. There was a place to land and I eventually uh, got hooked out by a Chinook. Right. Okay. Yep. And, and look, I, I can talk about it fairly glibly. I wasn't the only one. I don't think there was anybody in the company who was not uh, downed in some way or another. Now, there were some pretty pretty nasty accidents, uh, if that's the way 
to describe the differences when when someone gets hit by an RPG, there's not much left. Um, one of the early days, the 23rd of October, after we'd, we'd only been in our second group, we'd only been there a couple of weeks, and uh, three three aircraft and two gunships were shot down yeah. in one action in, on this particular day. One of my guys... Uh, saw an RPG zip past his his nose, for which he felt very thankful, and, and took out the aircraft next to him, which uh, he was formating on, um, went across the top of the uh, the cabin and, and took the whole of the, the transmission off. Well, they didn't fly any longer. Right. And the guy I'm talking, the Aussie I'm talking about, just stayed there for a few more minutes to uh, pick up the crew. Okay. And in that same encounter, another <clears throat> aircraft got shot down and landed in a bomb crater. And they were bloody lucky because there were enemy all around them, just looking, interestingly, looking but not doing very much. Okay. And another aircraft came in and picked up those guys. So that you could get uh, where the aircraft was hit hard or the pilots were killed, then you were going to have everybody else killed. Yeah. And that happened. Yeah. That happened. Yeah. Um, for the most part, though, I don't know why uh, the pilots, the crews, were incredibly lucky in the main, having incredible things done to their helicopters, but being able to land them uh, safely one way or another, and and be picked up by others in the same group. Mm-hmm. If someone in our group was shot down, it was our job to pick them up. And we did. We did all the medivacs. Uh, we did all the resupplies for the troops. As I said last time, we didn't go home until the battalions had finished with us, right. which could make for long days. I think I told you somewhere, I might have shown you a slide which I sent you. There were 7,000-plus uh, Hueys in Vietnam and 3,300 of them were destroyed in enemy action. Yeah, yeah, I was staggered by that. I had no idea that so many of them had been destroyed. That's incredible. Oh, it's a big number. 2,200 yeah. aircrew were killed with them, and only that's only the people who were killed. I've got no idea how many were wounded. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, the but that's just Hueys. There were there are a lot more other aircraft in South Vietnam. You know the Chinooks. Uh, were probably not the biggest. The Sky Crane was the biggest, and I've actually flown that uh, aeroplane too, by the way. Okay. Uh, but they were all the way down to the little Hughes LOH uh, light observation helicopter, uh, the Cayman, I think it was called. Can't remember its name. Tiny little uh, eggshell-looking thing with a, a a a fan on the top and a little tail rotor at the back. Right. Uh, I flew one of those one day with a guy. I was absolutely staggered what he was doing in this aeroplane with me as a uh, very nervous passenger because that's all I was. He was hovering in the lo- over the top of the long grass, spreading it out so that he could see the North Vietnamese soldiers hiding in the grass underneath. All right, okay. Oh, yeah, great fun. Mm. All right, and his gunner in the back doing the business. Wow. Not funny, not funny no. stuff. And I flown the Cobra, the Huey Cobra. 
that was a lovely airplane that was just brilliant it was its entree into uh the, that was where the attack helicopters really became a very lethal and accurate weapon beautiful lovely airplane to fly yeah let me go back to the uh the aircrew who were killed every Every Monday, I seem to recall on Armed Forces Radio Vietnam, there would be a tally of the number of Americans killed in the previous week. And in a good week, if it had been a good week, there were only 100 killed. Maybe 200 in a moderate week, but it went as high as 600 on occasions. Wow. 600 Americans killed in one week. I think we don't recall, most people don't recall that there were 58,200 Americans killed in Vietnam. That, that's, um, that's a staggering number, but that, what you're saying about that radio announcement every week, that's a strange thing to put across on the armed forces radio. Surely that would be demoralizing. Well, well it supposedly wasn't, you see, it was the body count business. Yeah. Only a hundred hours, we've got a thousand of them. Right. All right. right. And if there were six hundred of ours killed, then there were six thousand of them killed. Okay. Um, how the numbers were tallied, God knows, but uh, there were certainly terrible weeks of hundreds of Americans being killed. There was no question about that. And that's basically why the war ended. The American public back home got sick of it. Yeah. But, I mean, with 600 killed in a week, there were, five, there were only, well, only, only, how do you define that? There were, there were only 521 Australians killed. Right. In the whole five war. Of them, five of them, my guy, yeah, for the whole of the war. Yeah. All right. And uh, for, for New Zealand, 37. Yeah. Was, yeah. But bad enough as those figures are. How, how any country could stand 58,000 of its young people being killed is beyond me. Yeah, that's incredible. I guess with Vietnam, it was constant, though, because you think of, like, for example, World War II, there would be a battle and then there'd be a lull where everybody sort of just sits and they prepare for the next onslaught. But Vietnam, because the enemy was completely... You don't know where they are. They're all around you all the time. There's going to be constant um, picking away at each other, isn't it? And you're right. It was constant. It was all the time. <clears throat> there was no let up. Mm. None at all. Um, here's a thought that's just come to me. Do you remember what happened on the 21st of July, 1969? Uh, no. Would that have been the Tet Offensive? Or? No, no, no. Tet, yeah, yeah, you've sort of, I've put you on the wrong track. I'm sorry. Right. The, the Tet Offensives were uh, January, February of 68 and 69. Okay. No, 21st of July, 1969 was the moon landing. Oh, of course. Yeah. Apollo <laughs> moon really landing. The eagle has landed and the war stopped that oh, really? day. Yep. And I recall it vividly, watching on a tiny television screen, the sort the size maybe five by five inches, something that big, yeah. enclosed in a huge box of valves and, you know, all that stuff. 
<laughs> television sets have changed hugely since, but most people wouldn't uh, know that. Yeah. But grainy television, and we were watching absolutely astounded at what was going on on the moon. That's amazing. Uh, so the war stopped. But the next day, four of my guys were killed in a helicopter. Oh, wow. All right. And the CO and myself, bless him, uh, and myself had to go and uh, in another helicopter with body bags and pick these poor buggers up. Wow, that's awful. Yeah, it is. But that's it. It was uh, that was it. We looked after our own, one way or another. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Now, one of the things that you mentioned in the last interview, uh, and you you had kind of briefly mentioned it and said I'll talk about it later, but I don't think we got to it. You said that with the, the detachment of Australians that went up, um, you took a cook. So oh, yeah. What, what, was the, what was the food situation like uh, for you guys there? And, uh, it was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> it was disgusting. The, um, the American helicopter companies and anything I suspect that any company at any, any type of company basically existed on sea rations. Yeah. A cardboard box of uh, stuff inside. Just dreadful. Uh, at battalion level, you know, the, 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 the nice people, the majors and the colonels and the generals, yeah. I'm pretty sure a lot of them ate off, uh, off linen, you know, starched linen and had table service. But yeah, yeah. the rest yeah. of us uh, did put... You know what etherized eggs are, but the only way to get eggs uh, to Vietnam was to inject them with ether. Okay. Yeah, it sort of preserved them somehow, yeah. but you came away with the smell. Oh, and yeah. the, smell if you're, the smell of ether is just disgusting, but yeah. that's how eggs were prepared. And it did nothing to eggs. It did nothing to the potato. Fresh food was very, very hard to get. Deb yeah. was the potatoes you had. Um, meat was tinned uh, in larger quantities uh, for, you know, for the mess halls. So our cooks uh, were very important in many respects because when HMR Sydney or any other Navy ship of ours went up there and called into Bung Tower, we made a special point of being advised uh, and we'd take a helicopter down there and raid the ship. Right. And, and we would, I mean, it didn't happen often. It might have been once every two or three months. Yeah. But it was sufficient and they, and they would stock up for us, uh, fortunately, which was good. And we would come away with uh, decent steaks and fresh lettuce and veggies and all sorts of things that we hadn't had. Okay. And so the cooks, our Navy cooks, did wonders because the American cooks, well, they really, I'm not sure that they had a, a specialisation called cook. I have a feeling that they were all soldiers and, okay, son, you're going to be the cook. Yeah. Um, which, which didn't help menu preparation very much. As far as air crew were concerned, we'd get breakfast of eggs and, and uh, flavoured milk uh, was this thing. Yeah. And we'd get our box of sea rations. And didn't matter how long we were out, 
for the day, we could come back at midnight and we'd still only have that one box of sea rations, which in theory was one meal. Okay. But anyway, we would have that. Um, there was a tin of four types of meat. You'd get ham, turkey, beef, and chicken, I think, with the four types of meat in a in a small, I don't know, baked bean tin size thing. Yep, yep. Another very half size of that would be another tin which had a, uh, they called it bread, but it was somewhere between bread and a scone. Okay. In, te in texture. Uh, there was a little packet of dried of biscuits of some sort. Uh, there was some chewing gum. There was a bit of toilet paper, totally useless. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and a packet of cigarettes and matches. And would you believe it? We loved those bloody cigarettes. Okay. Even though they were written on every packet, you know, Surgeon General's warning, smoking is not good for your health. Well, yeah. Yeah. a lot of other things weren't good for our health up there. <laughs> yeah. That's for sure. <laughs> anyway, yeah. And, we, and it was almost a duty. Somebody in every aeroplane had to be a smoker and had to have a smoke going in the aeroplane. Okay. Yep. We flew with the doors off. So it was always windy and trying to light a cigarette inside a windy, any windy environment, it was very difficult. So one of the crew had to have a fag going and if somebody wanted one, well, he lit, he lit a cigarette off his or he would do it for you. He'd light your fag and give it to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the only time we didn't smoke and even then we weren't too fussy was when we were refueling. Right. Okay. Well, have a look at that father of my dad on his raid, that first raid to um, rebel that we spoke about. Yep. Count yep. the number of people with cigarettes in their hands there. Yeah, it was. Um, it was actually sure. recommended in the in the air force during the war. They non-smokers, they'd say, "Oh, you should take up smoking for your nerves." It's crazy, isn't it? <laughs> well, part of my training back at Cerberus when I first joined this caper was to take us to the Philip Morris cigarette factory in uh, Dandenong, close to the base, relatively, yep. um, to see how the fags were made. And when we came away, of course, with a free carton. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you, can you can imagine that happening today. No. <laughs> carton of cigarettes is, well, a week's wages now, I guess. Yeah, well, look, hey, when I went to, when I went to Malta, there were two things happening there. This is after, you know, my observer training way back. When I went to Malta, the Brits and, and we, because we were, were there with them, were able to buy a box of 400 cigarettes for a shilling. Wow. That's incredible. And whilst we weren't eligible for the rum ration, the Brits sailors were. And if you didn't take to rum... I forget who, lady somebody or other in England who was a temperance uh, fervent person uh, gave everybody in the Navy threepence a day in lieu of the rum ration. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, rum, booze, the only thing missing are the girls. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. All right, listen, hey, we're supposed to be in Vietnam. I want to get out of that place. <laughs>
your um your resume says that you were awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, but you're also awarded 12 US Air Medals. That's incredible. Oh, no, not really. No, no, not really. It, it, it sounds great. Oh, it sounds fantastic. Let me tell you how it really is. The United States Army Air Force instituted the Air Medal in World War II for the bomber pilots. Yeah. Or in fact, I think for all the pilots. But it was awarded on the basis of 25 hours combat over enemy territory. Sorry, tw- yeah, 25 hours combat in enemy territory. Oh, okay. Okay, so if you took off from uh, somewhere in England, you didn't start ticking up your air medal time until you actually crossed over uh, probably the coast, I suspect, but certainly when you got to Germany, then you started ticking it up. Yeah. All right. So you had to get 25 hours of that. The rules never changed. And so we in Vietnam were getting air medals on the, on the same basis. Right, now, I, right. I had, well, I ended up with 1,200-odd hours flying, of which I can quite honestly state that at least 1,000 of it was actual combat flying. Okay. But, you know, divide 25 into 1,000, that's a phenomenal number of medals. Yeah. 40, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and so the Americans back in the day had a system of call, they called them oak leaf clusters. And you get an oak leaf of one colour. Well, you get the metal first up and then your, your first, the, the next metal was a, an oak leaf of some description. And when you got five medals, the oak leaf changed to another colour. And when you got 10, it changed again, something like that. Um, But that got a bit boring um, to the bureaucrats, so they just numbered them. And whilst we were there, they changed this numbering system. Okay. And whilst it it took a while to get presented uh, with our medals, I ended up eventually with with a medal with 12 on it. And I, I really don't know whether that means I've got 13 of them uh, because that's, I've got, that's what I wear on my metal ribbon bar. Yep. But in my office here where I'm sitting talking to you, I've got, I've got yet another medal that was presented to me uh, for exactly the same stuff in Vietnam, which doesn't count as a 14th or whatever. And, I, and I've given one away to a, a, um, a service organisation somewhere else uh, I've got probably four or five extra medals somewhere. Anyway, I'm off the plot. It's uh, it was one for every 25 hours combat. Okay. Oh wow. So that sorts that out. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, but I'll tell you what. I'm very proud of it. All the same. Um, I mean, we were flying for the Americans uh, in American aircraft, and it was a dodgy job. And uh, that, to me, epitomises that medal uh, or group of them epitomises more perhaps than others, except for DSC, uh, what we were doing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Have you got anything else from the Vietnam era that you wanted to talk about? Oh, I could probably bore you forever, but no, <laughs> I think <laughs> I think we've, I think we've done well. Um, I'm happy to answer other questions if people want to. I've written a little bit about it, and I'm and I'm trying to write a history of our our four groups. 
that went there. A friend of mine and myself put together a series of essays yeah. uh, that a number of our people contributed to some 10, 12 years ago. But there's a fair bit of repetition in that book. And uh, so I've decided I'll try and make it into a more consistent total story rather than a series of uh, similar stories, okay. including yeah. the politics and all the rest of it that is now far more readily available than, than was when we first started writing right. about it. Can you tell me more, um, we'll step back a bit, can you tell me more about flying in the sea venom? What was the aircraft like to fly, particularly from your point of view as the, the observer? Uh, it was it was a nice aeroplane. I never did fly it. I flew yeah. the Vampire and the sea venom was, was similar, but uh, sleeker, better, faster, marginally faster. Both of them were subsonic. Uh, terribly cramped, oh, phenomenally terribly cramped inside. You could barely move. Right. Um, the observer had his head stuck into a radar set. There was a hood arrangement that you put your head up against and essentially all you could see were two radar screens in front of you. One which gave you a a left and right view, and another one which gave how much above or below, below the nose of the aeroplane was your target. Okay. And and by fiddling with knobs and levers, you would you would scroll a, a cursor out onto your target, and if it all worked, it would lock on. And from that point on, you would guide the aeroplane, your aeroplane, up to the tail of the of the chased aeroplane, you got so close you could look right up the jet pipe at night and see the glow of the fire. Right. Um, and then it was lights out and evade, and you got into some terrible aerobatic manoeuvres as the chased aeroplane tried to break lock, tried to make you break lock. It was hard work for the observers. Uh, none of us were ever particularly uh, well after a, a flight, it's always sick making. Yeah. Um, coming back to well, going off on the catapult shot was always an experience and a half. 98 foot long was Melbourne's catapult compared to the Americans these days of about 300. The acceleration from zero to flying speed of about 115 knots is phenomenal. It's 4G plus, wow. and it's all over in about two seconds. It's a mighty blooming jolt. And then you're airborne, hopefully, and you're away. At that point, flying is okay. Coming back to land on the carrier always had its excitements. Uh, the most, I nearly got, well, we nearly got killed one day. Uh, a bit rough weather, the, the deck was moving around a bit. The venom had to come in at 104, between 114 and 118 knots, full flap uh, was the, uh, the bracket speed to hit the deck at. We flew, we were about 115 on this particular day coming down the glide slope within about 100 yards or so of the, 
the ship, we went into the funnel, hot funnel gases of, of the ship itself. Yeah. And because hot hot air, less dense and all that stuff, we literally thundered onto the deck. We dropped like a brick. Um, the airspeed went from 115. That was my job, by the way, to call the airspeed to the pilot while he was looking at the meatball and getting his approach angle right. My job was just to tell him that the power and the speed were okay. Yeah. So at 115, all of a sudden, we hit the ship's funnel wake, thundered into the deck at about 105 knots. The venom stalled at 104, full flap, so we were effectively stalled, I guess. Yeah. And because we hit the deck so damn hard, we bounced. And I remember having time to think we've got to touch down on again before we go over the side. Otherwise, I'm getting out. Yeah. I'm going to eject. Well, we didn't touch down, just managed to sail over the deck edge. And I remember watching the anchor flash past as I'm trying to pull the ejection handles. Uh-huh. One to get the canopy off, and then I'd been able to, or both of us would have been able to eject. Well, fortunately, I was too damn slow because we flew away. Um, <laughs> so that was about the closest I've been in a sea venom to to a disaster. But a few of our people were on that same cruise. Um, another uh, observer got killed. He was just a whisker too slow ejecting. Uh, the, the venom picked up a wire on the deck and then the damn wire broke. And so they more or less uh, idled over the flight deck or the pilot tried to fly away. They were doing about 60 knots, I think, when, it, when the wire broke, yeah. nowhere near enough speed and no time for the, for the engine to power them away. So they both ejected, but... Uh, the observer was just a shade too slow and got killed. Wow. So that's, yeah, that was that. What, what else was on the carrier at the time as well as the sea venoms? Did, were, did, were there still fireflies or anything like that in service? Not in my time. The firefly and the sea fury were still at Nowra, yep. but not as operational aircraft. They'd, they'd shifted. The firefly sea fury were Korean war stuff. Um, when I got there, it was sea venom, vampires and sea venoms yeah. for the uh, combat air patrol, the fleet protection aspect uh, from approaching enemy aircraft, and then the change to the Wessex anti-submarine helicopter. They also had the, the Gannet, the Fairy Gannet. Oh, yeah. A, uh, AS, the, the British had the AEW, Airborne Early Warning Gannet, with a huge radar set in it. Yep. Precursor of all sorts of modern, far more modern aeroplanes now that do it at, you know, great height and great distances, but that was the beginnings of that stuff. Um, so Melbourne had uh, four sea venoms, four or no, six at some stages yep. of sea venoms. Uh, Eight, eight gannet, I guess you'd call them a form of long-range patrol aircraft. They carried sonoboys and would put out a protective barrier of sonoboys in front okay. of the fleet. Yep. And eight to ten Wessex 
helicopters who would do the close-in work with their active sonars okay, looking yes. for submarines. Yep. So that was the that was the complement. How many aircraft have we got? We've got about uh, 24 or so, I think. Yep. Uh, the deck, the hangar was practically the full length of the ship under, under you know, two decks down. Uh, when flying stations were on, the cannons and sea, venom, sea venoms would be on the right-hand side aft of uh, the island. The gannets would be on the left. And the Wessex, we have a couple of Wessex on the back end. Uh, and I think others in the hangar waiting to be brought up when there's a bit more space. Yeah. The, the, the gannets would go off first on the on the catapult. So you'd launch six or eight gannets. The sea venoms would be next. And, and the fun of that was that the first gannet to go off got the best booster shot of the lot because the boilers had the best power up. Right. <laughs> and as, and as, as they idled through the air, uh, through the aeroplane, so so your end speed and every aircraft called his end speed as he went off the catapult. So you'd start with 122 would be the first call, 121, 120, 119, 118, <laughs> and so on. And the last venom would go off at you know 115, 16, 17, whatever. Right. Wow. It was okay if there was a bit of wind around uh, and you went off into wind, obviously. But in the tropics, uh, there would be days and times when there was absolutely no wind. Right. And so every single cotton pick and knot at the end of that catapult shot was uh, was vital to you. Yeah, yeah. Because as you said before, the um, stall speed was 104. So there's not much margin there, is there? No, not really. I mean, if everything with everything working well, you are accelerating still. The engines giving you you go off at full power. You you appreciate you go off at full power on the catapult. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So there you go. Mm, interesting. Um, were were the you were on both the Sydney and the Melbourne at different times, weren't you? I was. Two yes, carriers. I was. Yeah. Were, were they? Were they much the same? Were they like the same class or were there differences? Oh, are they the same? Yeah, they're both majestic class, I'm pretty sure. Okay. They were laid down at about the same time. Sydney was first and Melbourne was on the, was being constructed, I think, by the end of the Second World War in, in Europe. Okay, yeah. Now, we bought Sydney uh, to come out and basically make our fleet air arm, begin our fleet air arm for us. Yeah. And it, uh, we started with another ship, though, a British ship which came out on loan, and I think that was the Glorious, or was her name? I just, look, I've got, I can't remember you. Yeah, uh, you've got me there. But anyway, uh, we eventually got Sydney as our first aircraft carrier. Melbourne was finally completed, and we bought her. The differences between the two ships: Sydney had a straight deck, right? Melbourne had a an angle built into her, but it wasn't a big angle, um, but it was sufficient. It was in that transition from aircraft landing short of the barrier on a straight deck. The barrier goes down, that aircraft then taxis forward, 
and the next aircraft lands with the barrier uh, up so that if he misses, he doesn't fly into all the parked aeroplanes. Right, yeah, yeah. That was the yeah. birth of the angled flight deck so that you could land on the angle, taxi out of that area, and the next aircraft could land, or if he missed the wires, fly away quite happily without having to worry about the barrier preventing mayhem on the par in amongst the parked aircraft. Right. Did you uh, come across much in the way of um, exercising with the, the British fleet air arm at all? Or uh, I, I know in your initial training, you said that you were attached to Malta flying with those guys, but was there much other uh, working with alongside the british the royal navy not in not in malta i was a, i was a midshipman under training they didn't want us uh for that sort of thing and there were no other british there i don't think oh, sorry aussies there yeah. uh, the australian fleet stayed pretty much in the southeast asian area and whilst the british had a big presence i don't recall too many aircraft carriers i think they will have been there. Look, they will have been in the Southeast Asian area, but not often. Yeah. Um, the east of east of Aden uh, business started to take hold around 1956. Remember the Suez Canal thing? Yep, yep. Right, yeah, well, just immediately after that, the British, or maybe even at the same time, uh, the Royal, well, no, the British government was reappraising its east of Eden policies. And that's where Australia took up a stronger hand, leaving the British to look after uh, things closer to home. Okay. I think that's that's probably how that one paid out. Yeah. And of course, as time's gone on, we've we've looked towards America far more yeah. with the ANZUS yeah. Treaty and so forth. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so. When you came yeah, back... Short answer to the question, it was no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's right. But when you came back from Vietnam, uh, did you go back to the Wessex or what, what did you... Did you stay on Iroquois or...? No, I left uh, Vietnam and almost immediately went to the UK ah. uh, for um, two, two, nearly two and a half years of glorious peace. I went to, uh, did a qualified helicopter instructor's course with the RAF yep. at Turnhill in, uh, up against the, in Shropshire, yep. England. Completed that course and then was posted to the Royal Navy's training, um, fleet air arm helicopter training base down in Cornwall, a place called Helston. Well, okay. the town is Helston. The base was called Cold Rose. Oh, yes. And yep. I, was, I was there on 705 Squadron as one of the instructors, one of many instructors uh, in the, essentially, I was in the Royal Navy for a couple of years training their people. Right, gotcha. Young, youngsters basically out of, out of uh, school, like I had been some years before, and uh, training them to become helicopter pilots. It was great fun. Okay. So, and this was, this was an exchange posting, was it? You were still this was an exchange room. posting. We, yeah. The Australians and the Brits had had an exchange posting going for, for many years, actually. 
And I was one of two Aussies there at that time. And we did our two years there to be replaced by another couple of Aussies uh, every time. Okay. Yep. A very, ple very pleasant interlude, especially after Vietnam. And that's why I got my uh, Distinguished Service Cross presented to me in Buckingham Palace. That was oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. That's, right. that's why it happened. I was, uh, I was in England at the time. Otherwise, it would have happened back in Aussie. Yeah. So what were you flying there in England? Uh, I did my uh, instructor's course on the Whirlwind Mark 10, I think it was, a turbine-driven aeroplane with a reasonable amount of power yep. and went to Cold Rose and flew the Hiller 12E, okay. uh, which was a tiny bubble. It probably, we probably had them in New Zealand at one yeah, time. Yeah, yep, there's a few of those Hillers around, yeah. Yeah, radio. Um, well, lovely, a glorious little aeroplane to fly. Great fun. Um, as well as on the same squadron, we had the Whirlwind Mark 7, which was okay. a piston-driven thing. It was a beast. It was a pig of a thing to try and start. It was started with a big shotgun cartridge, uh, which you, you hit, the, hit the button and it uh, blew hot gases to spin the engine up. And if yep. you... If you held your tongue the right way, it'd fire up and start. And if it didn't, it wouldn't. <laughs> it, it, it was all right to fly, but the hiller was totally different and and just and just very very pleasant. So yeah, it was a good couple of years. Okay, okay. And then I came back um, to Australia in the beginning of 1972, um, with the top helicopter instructor rating at the time. By the way. Uh, whilst I was there, I went from a C to a B, uh, and right and jumped a jumped a level up to uh, A1 uh, QHI, and and then I went back to the Wessex helicopter on on 817 Squadron. Yep. Um, up in the front seat. Now the the Wessex by this stage had been upgraded, the same airframe pretty well, but had been given a a bigger engine and a new sonar arrangement which dangled off 500 feet of cable. Okay, uh, yep. And I can tell you, hovering over the sea at night on instruments, totally on instruments, nothing to look out at, uh, at 30 feet and with 500 feet of, of sonar cable in the water and this phenomenally expensive big uh, ball at the very bottom, is a little bit daunting, especially when the, the hydraulics don't work to wind the thing in. Right. You've got, you got to just hover up to 500 feet plus uh, whilst the poor old crew in the back are winding this mongrel thing in by hand. <laughs> <laughs> not, not very funny. Not very funny. It didn't happen often, but it happened enough to, to make everybody uh, careful of how, how they did things. Yeah. yeah, it was a good aeroplane to fly, but uh, flying over the sea at night at 125 feet on a radar altimeter that was good for plotty accuracy by about five or ten, uh, and then punching buttons and with your hands off the controls, because if you touch the controls, they'd go ape, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and letting this uh, valve-driven arrangement uh, bring you into the hover at 30 feet um, is a little daunting. 
Yeah. It worked. I mean, for the technology, this is 19, the middle of 1950s technology. Yeah. Um, driven by valves, which, as you appreciate, you know, you heat them up and you get different readings from all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it worked remarkably well for, for what it, uh, or for how it was. These days, it's, it's, it's a bit uh, more technical and so forth. But anyway, yeah, it was good. It was a great experience. I mean, you had to work hard. Had to work hard. When, that, when, that went, sorry, go on, yeah. I was going to say, when you're flying the Wessex and you're going back to the ship, uh, was there any... Uh, you're on a carrier, aren't you? With the, with yes, those. yes. Yep. I guess it's a, a lot easier to land than when you land in a helicopter on the back of a frigate on that tiny wee deck that they have. But was there any oh. major danger with landing on a carrier or um, how, how did that work? Compared to landing on the frigate, no. Uh, landing on the carrier was much easier Yeah. Um, by comparison. I, I did a couple of landings on a very small deck um, at during that time, uh, but fortunately the sea was relatively calm and it wasn't an issue. Yeah. But it yeah. is very, very dodgy doing it on the back end of, of a small deck. And I've seen plenty of uh, YouTube stuff these last few years of a few spectacular um, events, and I have my hats off to those guys. The space is absolutely minimal. Yeah, absolutely. There's no room for any error and. And when the deck is really pitching around, it you know you've got to take it uh, take time to to do all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, some of those. So, yeah, uh, good, luck to, good luck to them. Yeah, exactly. So look, uh, I, I did my time uh, back at Nara. I had a, a couple of nice jobs. I did. I did. I was an equerry to Prince Charles once. All right. That was that was good fun. He did had an Australian tour on. In 1974, and uh, why I was asked, Lord only knows. But I was his equerry, and it was just, it was great. Right. Uh, it was great. Yeah, he was a great guy, and great to work for. It was only six or eight weeks, six weeks, I think. But, uh, we went everywhere around Australia, and and living in government houses, and uh, again, all the all the finest uh, wines and food you can imagine. It's, it, was, it was a tough gig, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then, then the reality bit, and I, uh, I, I was taken away from flying for a while and, and got my bridge watchkeeping certificate. Okay. Uh, learning how to drive ships. Um, that was on HMAS Parramatta. And whilst the training periods now are possibly a little bit shorter and and with a lot more electronically driven learning uh, processes. But back then it was a year and it was hard work uh, on the bridge and uh, under the eagle eye of a captain who um, in those days and probably still uh, can be very, very hard taskmasters. They could make or break you very quickly. Yeah. Yep. Um, but anyway, that worked. I, I got the certificate and uh, happily so. And then then back to the squadron to fly Wessex again. Okay. That, yep. that brings us up to, I must tell you about Cyclone Tracy. Oh, uh, yeah. Which went through Darwin, as you may remember, in uh, Christmas Eve, 1974. 
Yeah, yeah I don't remember it. I was, a, I was only a, a wee kid then, but I certainly heard about it. Yep, sure. Uh, well, Cyclone Tracy ripped through Darwin uh, Christmas Eve whilst the rest of the country is in blissful ignorance uh, of this. And, and certainly I was, and well, everybody was, but on, that, on Christmas Day, I was with my son and, uh, and another young lad throwing rocks in a nearby river, as you do with youngsters uh, after Christmas lunch. Finally got home and and my poor wife is almost uh, beside herself saying they need you back at the base as some dreadful things happened. And and so off to the base I went and um, learnt that our squadron was required to to go come out of suspended maintenance. Those days we, everybody shut down for Christmas and the airplanes were packed away. Well, we everyone was busily unpacking them on Christmas Eve, uh, sorry, on Boxing, Christmas Day, Boxing Day night. Yeah. On Boxing Day, uh, they completed the job and uh, I had a squadron of pilots that flew eight aircraft up to Sydney from Nowra to land on HMAS Melbourne, which then took off that same, same day for Darwin with the rest of well, most of the rest of the Australian Navy in tow to go to Darwin uh, because we were the only form of manpower possible to get there in a quick time to help uh, the people of Darwin uh, to look after them and uh, and to help clean the place up. Wow. So uh, my squadron uh, converted to um, troop carriers after a fashion um, taking people ashore every day, bringing them back at night, shifting stuff, carrying loads, uh, doing all sorts of incredible work. Yeah. Um, nothing like any, any of my guys had ever done before. I was reasonably used to uh, load lifting and stuff, but they, they weren't. So it was a great experience for, for them in a very sad time for the people of Darwin. But anyway, we worked and it happened. Yeah. Stayed up there for six weeks, uh, came back to Sydney as a group and then headed off to Hawaii for mm-hmm. exercise uh, with the Americans. Now, I, I must tell you this one because it's a great story, I reckon. On the way from Australia to Hawaii, you go past a lot of islands. On our way, we went relatively close to Umea. And then from out, out from there, it's all ocean and nothing except the very occasional island. And I want, if you can, or you will, I hope, check out on an island by the name of Matthew Island. Do it on Google Earth. It's near Hunter Island. There are two islands there, probably only a couple of acres in size each. Just check them out. And then I will tell you the rest of the story. The rest of the story is that one of our aircraft, fixed-wing aircraft, flying around on this particular day, spotted a crashed aeroplane on Matthew Island. So what do we do? Well, they radioed back to the ship and said what they'd found. The ship worked it out that it was French territory. Eventually got in touch with Umea, or the, the authorities in Umea, and they came back and said, no, it's okay. The pilot's okay. It happened quite a while ago. So that's fine. 
off we go to Hawaii, do our exercises. On the way back, we stop off at Matthew Island because in the meantime, the French have organised the man who had been in the aeroplane, put him into one of their minesweepers, and one of my aircraft picked him up in that aircraft, and I followed from the ship in mine, and we landed on Matthew Island with the view of picking his old crashed aeroplane up and bringing it back to the ship, um, back to Sydney eventually, and then he could get his aeroplane back to Newmere somehow. Right. So that's fine. I land on the island. I didn't really, we did, had, I don't think any of us had any idea about the aeroplane we were trying to pick up. Uh, the photographs we had of it were not good quality. We didn't have that sort of gear way back in those days. But long story short, landed on this island. Two things struck me. First of all, the smell of sulfur. And you look oh, up yeah, and here's yeah. this island smoking away, doing its thing. And the other thing was the millions, and I mean millions, of birds. And the only way you could walk on the island was to shuffle your feet. Because if you walked normally, you would stomp on a bird. Wow. All right. They were millions of them. And I had the two helicopters there. I dared not shut them down just in case we couldn't start them up. Yeah. And so I'm shuffling along, literally, you know, sliding the feet along to get away from the birds. Anyway, we got up to the crashed aeroplane and, and I met the guy and uh, long story short, we could not pick his aeroplane up. And so we eventually took the engine out of it and brought that back to the ship and him. Yeah. And then he told us the story. And the story is absolutely amazing. His name was, because he's now long since dead, Henry Martinet. And if you check that up, by looking for example, just Google the Aero Club of Caledonia. Yeah. It's now named after him. And he and his dad, when, when I met him, he was in his late 60s. But what he had done, and, and this is why he was on Matthew Island, was he used to take his little Stinson L5 Sentinel, was the aeroplane he had. Yeah. He used to fly around the various islands there land, take out his case of champagne and his fishing rod. He would fish. He would finish his champagne, hop into the aeroplane, go back to Newmere and do the whole thing all over again on another island. Yeah. And he'd be doing this for years. In fact, he'd flown to France twice from Newmere for their Bastille Day celebrations. Wow. Phenomenal, phenomenal uh, flights. Amazing fellow. Yeah. How did he get to Matthew Island? Well, he'd found this blimmin' place. He knew of it. He'd gone and reconnoitred it, reckoned he could land there, took his new bride with him, or no, maybe not a new bride, took his wife with him anyway. And on the approach, the very last bit where you chop the throttle and decide you're going to be able to land, he realised the pebbles that he'd been looking at were boulders. Oh, so he, he hit them and, and broke a main wheel in his propeller. Now, he'd been smart enough to have a chase aeroplane with him. He rang back to the aeroplane and said, I'm OK. We're both OK. Uh, we've got food enough for three weeks. Get me a new propeller and a wheel and, uh, and drop it in and we'll be right. 
So <laughs> a couple of weeks later, the Chase airplane comes back, drops a note and says, sorry, it's going to take six or eight weeks to get your new propeller from America. And, and so a passing ship is going to drop off a life raft to you, which they did, picked him up, took him back to New Mere. In the intervening period, he gets his propeller and new wheel. He then, with a, a friend in, an, in another aeroplane, borrows, borrows this other aeroplane with a spare pilot, and they head off out to Matthew Island. Now, have you ever heard of the Intertropics Conversion Zone? I have, yes. Right. It's the zone between the north and south hemispheres of dirty weather, basically. Yeah. And it was in place over this area at the time, but they thought it had gone. They took off on this day and all of a sudden they were in the murk. They got so dreadfully lost. They lost radio contact with New Mir. They had no idea where the hell they were. Ran out of fuel. Glided down to the ocean. <laughs> in, into the water, out of the aeroplane, all four of them, and sit in a life raft for 48 hours while the French Navy comes and picks them up. Oh, <laughs> and, and then we came on the scene in Melbourne on our way to uh, Hawaii. Right, so, right. So he put his aeroplane on Matthew Island, um, I don't know, a year or so before we got there. <laughs> it was a, a lovely man, absolutely lovely man. I, I encourage anyone who's interested in the story to Google Matthew Island and there are, someone has dropped a couple of photographs on the place. Have a look at the photos. They are just amazing because right. I, I've got a bunch of photos myself taken back at the time. But how anyone could possibly land on this Plymouth Island in anything other than a helicopter is totally beyond me. But anyway, there you go. There's your story. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and a lovely man, a lovely man. He was the guest of the Admiral in his in the Admiral's cabin on the way back to Sydney, on our trip back to Sydney. Lovely, lovely man. Glorious stories. And 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 as pragmatic as all hell, he was more than happy to be alive, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lovely guy. Wow. So there you go. I did the Army Staff College 1976. And if you go to Staff College, you've got to go to Canberra and get screwed up in the bureaucraties of the place. Yeah. Um, I did that for a couple of years. I was became the ex the executive officer of HMAS Vampire. Yeah. What sort of ship was that? Um, a six-gun destroyer. Okay. Um, in 1979. That was great fun. Um, I went to the Australian Defence Force. Uh, sorry, I went to the Australian National University as a Defence Force fellow a year or so later. Yeah. Uh, studying um, fuel needs for a, a Defence Force. That was good fun. Went back to Canberra again into the into the bosom of the Navy as Deputy Director Naval Plans and and got promoted to Commander. And about that time. You know, things were looking fairly good for me. Well, I could have um, stayed on, I suspect, and done lots of other things, but family and uh, that stability was more important. I'd, I'd been spending years away from home, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, and, and my wife and 
three kids, you know. I don't know that they ever knew they had a father, to be honest. Who's the strange man at home, mummy? But anyway, so, yeah, and, you know, we're still married, so I did the right thing, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. I retired in 82, bought a farm, which we're still at, and from whence I am talking with you now. Yeah. Did a did a lot of um, bureaucratic work. Oh, golly, if you can push a desk in one place, you can push it anywhere. Uh, but I went into town planning and things like that with, um, with family in mind. It's worked well. Um, kids are all adults and at the top of their respective games. Um, we're pretty happy with that. Uh, I've done a lot of things around here, as one does in a small community. You get involved and, um yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. I've been on, you know, I've been in local council. I was a shire president here for a while. Okay. Uh, you do local stuff. You just do local stuff. It's been good. But then, oddly, in 2004, I got the most odd request from the Navy, come back in. Um, they wanted me for a specific job, which I did, and then it grew to something much, much bigger. And, and all of a sudden, I was back in uniform for another five years. Okay. Uh, which, which I love because, um, so, I mean, amazing that the Navy should want me after 25 years. There had to have been people around who grew up in the same work, but be that as it may, I was happy to do and help um, and loved it. Um, I left the Navy with um, people who were now admirals, being midshipmen back then, and there were, there were virtually computing was just beginning to get going. Um, way back then, and it can totally can taken over now. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that sort of that sort of brings me up to the present, as far as this story is concerned. I have though been involved very heavily in in Vietnam stuff, one way or another. Um, I I speak to the recruits at HMAS Cerberus, as I think I told you in the last interview. About one of the guys who was killed in my group, and after whom is named one of the divisions in the recruit school. I talked to those guys about what it was like and uh, and so forth. And I've been involved in in trying to, I, th- I guess, right or wrong. There were any number of our people in Vietnam did the most amazing stuff, and 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 whilst. The Victoria Cross is a medal which is kept for very, very rare events. Um, the couple of our guys, my, not in my group, one was in my group, and there were, there were other guys who, who were up in that level of bravery. Yeah. Yeah. But it just could not be conceived back then by our Navy masters that that could possibly be the case. Uh, and And... I don't wish to sound bitter about it. I certainly, well, we all certainly were at the time. Um, medals were rationed, and it was just a disgraceful thing yeah. back then. It doesn't happen now. If someone is brave enough to win the, the medal, then they'll probably get it. But back then, you could only have so many um, medals of any one type um, per Per year, 
And if there's if there's more bravery went on than the number of medals were too damn bad. So I've been involved in in getting a couple of people um, medals for gallantry, which are Australian medals of some distinction yeah. for a couple yeah. of people, and very heavily involved in getting the unit citation for gallantry for our group as a whole. Uh, and, and very happy to be known to have had something to do with that. Uh, because well, the you. unit citation for gallantry, there's only six of them in our Australian Defence Force. I don't even know if you, uh, if your Defence Force in New Zealand has a similar thing. I suspect you probably do. Um, yeah. It's similar but different to the US presidential citation, um, but of that, it's in that league. It's certainly the top, the top thing is a group medal for gallantry. Right, right, right. Personal medal for gallantry, if you like. Yeah. Um, and that went to the whole group um, because our people did amazing things. I mean, we're talking about our cook earlier on. He, along with the maintainers, um, all went out into the field. Weren't required to, but did. And they did because it was just showing that they could um, and weren't going to let us aviators get into trouble without at least having some idea of what it was about. Right. And then, look, a lot of the, uh, quite a number of my, our maintainers went out into the field, uh, into enemy territory where we'd been shot down and fixed up aeroplanes on the basis of if it, if the, if we can, save the Chinooks coming out, um, we'll, we'll have an aeroplane that can fly later that day. Right, right. And, and, it was, and it happened. It happened not every day of the week, but by golly, it happened. And when it didn't work, it was brilliant. So those guys needed to be recognised because they did a huge amount of hard work for us. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That yeah. brings up today. Yeah, and... Uh... The only other thing you haven't mentioned is you, you're now a gliding instructor. You do a bit of gliding, don't you? I do a little bit of gliding, mate. It's Monday here, but on Saturday and Sunday, I got up eight hours of instructing youngsters in gliding, uh, and it was a lovely couple of days. Nice to be back in the game. So there you go. Yes, I do instruct in gliding, and this weekend gone has been a ripper. <laughs> I went over to Amaramar um, some years ago and flew yep. there. That was good. Yeah, that was a, that's a different sort of gliding. That's the toughest gliding I've ever done. Right, right. Um, fabulous to be at that height and in flying in those conditions. But I would hate to have to try and find a place to land if it went dodgy. It's pretty ordinary, pretty yeah. ordinary country. It <laughs> is. Yeah. Yeah. Where about where about so is. Whereabouts do you glide from? Where are you based with the gliding? Um, uh, put yourself in Melbourne first. Yep. And whilst Melbourne's the bottom of the country, sort of, you can still drive southeast away from Melbourne for quite a distance. And if you go two hours southeast out of Melbourne, you'll get to roughly where I am. Yep. Um, and uh, the airfield from where I live is about half an hour away. Okay. What, what's it called? Oh, Lynn Gaffer. Okay. Yep. Lynn Gaffer. Yep. It's not the greatest airfield in the world for gliding, I might add. We're too close to the sea, oh, uh, yeah. which makes a big difference. If 
Um, the Great Dividing Range is north of us here, me here, by about 30 or 40 miles. And north of that uh, is the great inland of Australia. And everywhere north of the dividing, north and east, west of the dividing range in Australia is great for gliding. It's hot, uh, it's flat, damn near dead flat. Um, you can land anywhere and you can fly thousands of kilometres. Yes, yeah. It's great. Yeah, good place. Yeah. yeah. Different sort of gliding to what you have in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. All good fun. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much, Max. It's been good to get this uh, third interview with you and, and covering the rest of your career because it's uh, fascinating stuff. And no, I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. Well, look, thank you. I've enjoyed having these talks with you. I think you've, you've talked me out. Uh, I think you've got all that you may be worried about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm very pleased. Thank you very much. Good on you, Dave. Keep well. Talk to you and on. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.